Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Today we're tackling one of the most perplexing serial killer mysteries in American history and a murderer known by two names, the Torso Killer and the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. I'm grateful to have as my guest today Dr. James Bedell. He's an English and journalism professor and true crime writer who's written a number of books about murder in the American heartland. He's here to talk about his book, In the Wake of the Butcher, Cleveland's Torso Murders. Great having you here. Thank you. Glad to be here. I like the story you tell in your book about your first exposure as a child to the Torso Murders. Would you mind telling that story? Oh, no. I've told it many, many times. I get asked about it all the time. Uh, When I took American history in eighth grade, for some reason, the teacher felt that the torso murders were worthy of standing with the Civil War and Thomas Jefferson for whatever reason. And the last two days of the class period, he read us an article that appeared in the 1949 November issue of Harper's Magazine. And my whole class was just entranced. I often say to some of my fellow teachers, if you want to get the attention of a bunch of 15-year-olds, read them something about about people getting their heads lopped off. And I never forgot it. Uh, It made a very, very powerful impression on me. Uh, At one point, I developed an interest in Jack the Ripper. And then I began to realize that Cleveland had its own Jack the Ripper, and he killed more people over a longer period of time. So... That was the beginning. Your book centers around an area of Cleveland known as Kingsbury Run. Yeah. Can you, can you describe what Kingsbury Run was like in the 1930s? 
Well, it's not much different today. It, Kingsbury Run is a prehistoric riverbed, and it's attached to the neighborhood known as the Flats, and it swings out in a southeast arc out to about East 79th or so. Uh, it's where the rapid transit tracks are. It's where the train tracks are. A lot of the industry was and still is in that area. It's a pretty frightening-looking place, especially at night. Part of what makes this story so fascinating is that it involves the famous untouchable Elliot Ness. What brought Elliot Ness to Cleveland? Uh, he was lobbied by Mayor Harold Burton to become the city's safety director. And after his days in Chicago, he apparently went to the, what do I say, the foothills and swamps of Kentucky and was busting moonshiners. And it was just as dangerous as trying to get Capone, and he wasn't getting any, anywhere near as much publicity. In nine, the mid-1930s, Cleveland was one of the most dangerous cities in the country, uh, especially auto accidents were off the charts. And so the mayor asked him to become the city's safety director. Now, safety director is a rather unusual designation. I don't think too many cities have it. But essentially what it means is he is in charge of all elements in the city, the police department, the fire department, who are concerned with public safety. And he accepted the job in December of 1935. So the story starts when a 34-year-old man named Frank Lagasse uh, was searching the Lake Erie shore for driftwood on September 5th, 1934. What did he discover? Well, at first he saw something which he described to friends and neighbors as looking like a tree trunk with the bark stripped off of it. When he got closer to it, he realized that it was the lower half of a woman's torso, thighs still attached but amputated at the knees. What did the, the coroner deduce after examining the body? Uh, the coroner was not able to do so much about it. Uh, he thought the woman had been dead for maybe six months and that this particular part of her body had been in the lake perhaps three or four. There was something on the body, uh, something that preserved it. In fact, there was some speculation that the killer might have put something on the body to hasten decomposition, but made a mistake and simply got something which preserved it. Cause of death, of course, was impossible to, to determine. Uh, the woman was never identified. No one was ever arrested for the murder. And the upper half of the torso was found somewhere else, right? That was found somewhere else, yeah. Uh, North Perry Township, of memory serves, it floated ashore. At first, the police weren't sure that this was even a murder. Is, is that correct? Right, yes. So it was a group of boys, right, on September 23rd that led police to the next gruesome discovery. Yeah, uh, two neighborhood boys, uh, what were their names, James Wagner and Peter Costura, and they were tossing a softball back and forth at the top of a neighborhood elevation known as Jackass Hill. 
Uh, Jackass Hill is on the south side of Kingsbury Run, and there's about a 60-foot slope down into Kingsbury Run proper. And apparently one of the boys missed the ball when it was tossed to him, and the ball rolled down the hill. And the older boy challenged the younger one to, well, a race to the bottom of the hill to see who could get to the ball first. Well, the older boy got there first, and he looked around, and he literally froze. And he ran back up the hill, intercepting his friend with this horrifying announcement that he had seen a dead man in the bushes with no head. Uh, when the police came, they found the body of a white male, naked except for his socks, decapitated and emasculated. The body was clean, drained of blood. Whoever had done this had obviously done it elsewhere and simply left the body here. And as they explored the area, they found the body of another man, also decapitated, also emasculated. Uh, but this would have been there for quite some time, maybe as long as three weeks to a month. They found the heads of both men buried in the dirt with just enough hair of one of them sticking above the surface to ensure that somebody would find them. And what really amazed the police more, at least as much as the sheer brutality and strangeness of the murders, was the Jackass Hill was an elevation of 60 feet, as I said. And the evidence was very clear. There were no roll marks in the grass. There were no drag marks. Whoever had done this had taken the time to carry these two bodies down the hill, lay them out, and bury the heads, most likely in total darkness, and no one at the top of the hill saw a thing. The police identify one of the victims as Edward and Andrassi. Did I, did I pronounce that right? Andrassi, yeah. Uh, he was what police in those days called a snotty punk. He was 29 years old. Uh, he had been arrested any number of times for drinking and brawling. As far as anyone could tell, uh, when they looked into his past, He'd only held one even remotely steady job in his life. He had been an orderly at the Old City Hospital, which is today Metro General, in the psycho ward. Interesting detail, don't you think? Yes, for sure. And there were a number of people with motive to harm or even kill him, weren't there? Oh, well, I wouldn't say a, a huge number, but yeah, he uh, he made enemies. This is a pretty unique situation, as we'll learn as we cover the rest of the murders, in that Andrassy was one of the only two positive identifications of victims, which meant that he was one of only two that the police were able to actually follow up on. Exactly, exactly. Uh, he had a police record, therefore his fingerprints were on file, and the body was found within at least a day or two after the murder, so they were able to get a good set of prints. And you have to remember, in those days, police operated on the assumption that people were murdered by other people that they knew for understandable reasons like greed, jealousy, whatever. And so, as far as they were concerned, the first step in solving a murder was to identify the victim. Then you looked at the victim's family and associates. Uh, and in later cases where they were unable to identify the victims, it was like running into a stone wall. 
What about the, the second body? Did, did they have anything to go on with that one? They had absolutely nothing to go on. Uh, it was scorched. It, apparently, the killer tried to burn it at some point. Uh, he was never identified. And if you look at the photographs of his recovered head in the book, he was in pretty bad shape by the time they found him. While we're on the subject of Andresi, could you talk about the four photograph negatives of Andresi that detectives discovered when going through his things? That actually happened a couple of years later. Uh, They had run into a stone wall, so to speak. And so what they were doing was revisiting parts of the case they'd already investigated. And they went back to the Andrassy residence. Edward lived with his parents. This was a depression after all people lived together. And when they went through the room, they found four negatives of Andrassy sitting in a rather garishly decorated room. And they thought, well, we can find who find out who took these. This may bring us closer uh, to the murderer. They did find out who took them, but it didn't help any. Talk about the night of January 26th, 1936. The next victim discovered was a woman, right? That's right. Flo Palillo. Her name was Flo Palillo. Yeah, it was a woman. Uh, she was a part-time waitress, part-time barmaid, part-time prostitute. Could you tell us how her body was discovered in the state that it was in? Well, her body was discovered, as you say, on that night in January 1936. And even in 1936, that was a pretty seedy area of Cleveland. And the residents who lived in that area were being kept awake by a barking dog. And sometime in the early morning, a black woman decided she was going to go out to see what was disturbing the dog so much. And she went up an alley off of East 20th behind a building which belonged to Hart Manufacturing. And on the snowbank behind the building, she saw two half-bushel produce baskets covered over with burlap bags. And she lifted the corner of one of the burlap bags and saw what she thought was a ham. And there happened to be a butcher shop right down facing East uh, 20th, so she went back down the alley, uh, went into the butcher shop and said she had seen some hams in the basket behind Hart Manufacturing. And the poor butcher thought, my God, someone's, you know, robbed my shop. So he ran back there, reached into the one of the baskets and pulled out a human arm. And when the police got there, they found about one half the disarticulated remains of a woman. Uh, and the pieces have been wrapped in newspaper and then packed into these half-bushel produce baskets and then covered over with burlap bags. Uh, the Flo Palillo did have a record, and again, the body was fresh enough that they were able to get a good set of prints. They were able to identify her. She had a pretty seedy life. They followed up on every lead they had on her, and unfortunately, they led nowhere. As you said, her life was seedy, and she hung out with a number of unsavory characters. Yeah. Did, did any of them stick out for the police? None of them stuck out, really. Uh, there are a number of names that police looked at that uh, recorded in the surviving police reports, but none of them 
None of them stuck out. So on June 5th of 1936, some boys found a human head hidden under a pair of trousers under a, a willow tree. Well, it, well, it was, I'm not sure it was a willow tree. It may have been. Uh, the head was actually wrapped up in the pants. Uh, these were two African-American boys, ages 11 and 13. And they were crossing Kingsbury Run in the area of East 55th. And legend says they were going to school. Well, they weren't. They were playing hooky. They were going fishing, although I have no idea where one went fishing back in those days. But at any rate, they found this rolled-up pair of pants under a tree, and they thought there might be money in the pockets. So the one boy poked the pants with his pole, and it unrolled to reveal the human head. Uh, the two boys ran home and hid until one of their mothers came home. And considering they made this rather gruesome discovery at 8.30 in the morning and the mother didn't come home till 4.30, you can imagine the day they must have put in. Uh, at first, they were so traumatized, they couldn't take the police back to where they had f seen this. Ultimately, they did. The rest of the body turned up the next day about a half a mile away, quite literally dumped in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police Building. Uh, it was intact except for the head, and it was naked. It was a victim maybe 24, 25, 26 years old. And he had six different tattoos on various parts of his body. Again, they were able to get a good set of fingerprints, but they weren't on file with anyone. And uh, they thought the tattoos might be a clue. And they sent those tattoos or pictures of them out to tattoo parlors all over the country, but no one recognized the work. Interesting. So the next murder is discovered on July 22nd, 1936, by a teenager named Marie Barkley. What did she find? Uh, well, she was walking through a wooded area pretty much on the near west side. This is the only victim that was found on the west side. And she came upon the naked, decapitated corpse of a man laying on his chest. Uh, the clothes were nearby, and the head had been perched on top of the clothes. The police tried to take a set of fingerprints, but the body was too far gone. It had been dead for as long as a month meaning he was probably killed about the same time as the tattooed man had been. Uh, they guessed at his age. It seems to me they thought he might be in his mid-30s, but that was about it. At this point, there really wasn't any question that the murders were all linked, right? Well, uh, no. That was not at all clear at the time. Uh, first of all, the space between the murders... The murder in 1934 and 1935, a year had passed. Uh, several months had passed between September and January, 35 to 36. And then another half year before the head of victim number four was found. So no, the police were not making a connection. They had no notion of what a serial killer was in those days. The, the term serial killer was not defined and described until sometime in the mid in the mid seventies. 
And again, they were operating on the assumption that people were killed by people that they knew, hence identify the victim, and then you have a lead to who may have done it. Uh, actually, the newspapers seem to have made the connection before the police did. It was about this time in the summer of 36. While we're on the subject of the police, I'd like to ask you about Peter Murillo? Merlo. Oh, okay. Like the wine. There's a Y yeah. in his name, so I wasn't sure. Yeah. He's really a, a compelling character in the story, and I'd love it if you could talk about his background and his role in the investigation. Uh, Peter Merlo was an immigrant from Central Europe. I think he came to this country when he was 19, if I remember rightly. Uh, he joined the police department after World War I, uh, he very quickly became the pistol champion of the police department. Uh, he also had the highest arrest record of anyone else in the department. And so in the fall of 1936, the mayor, Harold Burton, asked the police chief, George Manowitz, to put his best man on the torso murders full-time. Well, that best man turned out to be Peter Merlo. He had a partner named Martin Zalewski, who, like Merlo himself, was of Central European origin, and he was multilingual, which meant that he could talk with the immigrant populations who lived in the area on the south side of Kingsbury Run, the Broadway East 55th area. And for the duration of the case, uh, he was the go-to man as far as the press was concerned. So the next body was the torso of a man cut in half, no arms, no legs, no head, and the torso was found floating in a, in a dirty Kingsbury Run Creek on September 10th. Yeah, that's it. They, they did find the legs eventually. They searched that pool for about a month. They even tried draining it. And they never did recover the whole body. People in Kingsbury Run must have been in panic mode. Uh, double panic mode. The whole city was in panic mode uh, because the police, this has been going on for some time now. The connection among the victims have been made and the police seemingly had no, uh, had made no progress. What were the, the common connections between the victims at this point? Well, the only connection, as far as the disarticulation was concerned, that was constant for all the victims was that they were decapitated. Uh, some of the male victims, like Edward Andrassy, victim number two, and the tattooed man, were not further mutilated than that. They were simply decapitated. And then in the case of Andrassy, victim number two, he had been emasculated as well. It seems to be the women primarily, who were cut up in smaller pieces. And, of course, we have no idea why. It may have simply been a transportation issue. So how did Elliot Ness get involved in the investigation? Uh, he got involved in the fall of 1936, and he got involved because the mayor of the city asked him to become more directly involved than he had been. I think Ness was smart enough to realize that this was a case that was beyond his experience. Uh, he was used to people who committed crimes for understandable reasons. 
and the fact that we might be dealing with somebody who's killing people he didn't even know for his own unfathomable reasons. I I think he realized that this was potentially a quagmire, and he pretty much kept away from it until Burton asked him to become more directly involved September of 36. So today, through television and movies, Elliot Ness is, a, is an almost mythological figure, the man who brought down Al Capone. What was his, his reputation like in Cleveland in the 1930s? Oh, it was spectacular. Uh, he came in, as I said, December 1935, and within a couple of years, he cleaned up the city remarkably, so much so that the city actually got an award for being a safe city. <laughs> and he's being idolized on a national level when he moves to Cleveland? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's interesting. Everybody knows about Elliot Ness in Chicago. Very few people know about Elliot Ness in Cleveland. And yet what he accomplished in Cleveland as far as bringing safety to the city was probably more spectacular than whatever, what he did in Chicago. What were the methods that he used to bring safety to the city of Cleveland? Oh, uh, one of the things he did was clean up corruption in the police department. Uh, he busted some illegal gambling joints. Uh, one of the other things he did was to mandate that police officers should be trained more than they were, and that police cars should be clearly marked so that people knew them, would recognize them when they saw them. A lot of what he had to do uh, had to do with simply cleaning up traffic problems. We will be right back. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. So at this point, are the, the police working on a profile of a, of a suspect? What have they determined about the killer from the overall evidence so far? Nothing at this point. Uh, the police themselves did not seem to have determined anything. They were still trying to identify the victims and, again, you know, identify them, look at their uh, family and acquaintances. The then coroner, uh, this was the summer of 1936, my by the name of A.J. Pierce, uh, he convened what the newspapers called a torso clinic. And I must admit, when I first got into this, I did not realize how far-sighted this was. Uh, Pierce invited in all of the police who had worked on the case. Ness was obviously there. Uh, he invited the anatomists from Western Reserve Medical School and the heads from the various mental institutions in the area. And essentially, they sat down and said, what are we looking for? Uh, so this is apparently, at least as far as I knew, one of the first examples, and if not the first, one of the first major examples of what today we would call modern FBI profiling. And consider, considering they were the first ones to do that, uh, they really did a pretty good job. So things begin again in February of 1937. Right. Another half a torso discovered a woman on a Lake Erie beach. It had been washed up and not carried there, right? Yeah. Well, again, she was discovered, or that part of her was discovered by a man who lived in the area named Robert Smith, and he was looking for driftwood to burn. And when he first saw it, he thought it was either the body of a dead dog or a dead sheep. And the fact that he thought it might be a dead sheep, I suppose, says something about what the laws were like in those days concerning farm animals. 
But when he got close to it, he realized it was the upper half of a woman's torso, arms amputated, and no head, of course. All sorts of rumors floated around about who might be committing these murders. Abortion farms, religious cults, sexual sadists, etc. Yeah, a little bit of everything. None of it, of course, led anywhere, but... The next victim is found a few months later on June 6th, 1937. Investigators dig up a burlap sack with a human skeleton inside. Part of a human skeleton was incomplete. Uh, The first part of the body was discovered by a 14-year-old boy walking home under the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge. And he saw something glittering in the sunlight. When he got close to it, he realized it was the bridge work and a human skull. The bag was underneath the skull, and it contained most of the remains, uh, the disarticulated remains, but the skeleton was not complete. Investigators were able to determine that this was the body of an African-American woman, and she's identified as Rose Wallace. Right. Can you explain how they were able to put that together? Well, uh, Rose Wallace was a neighborhood resident close to where the body was found. And she had disappeared from the neighborhood about the time that the coroner speculated that she had been killed. And her remains matched more or less her general description. Now, apparently several months later, a young African-American man walked into the uh, local police station and asked to see the bridge work that was found with the skull. And when he saw that, he said, that's my mother, it's Rose Wallace. But it was never concretely confirmed like the other two. It's most likely her, but it's not absolute, no. One month later, a private named John Smith saw something bobbing in the Cuyahoga River. It was another dissected torso, and the coroner concluded that whoever had made the incision on the lower half knew something about anatomy. Well, they had made that discovery, or they had come to that conclusion during the torso clinic of 1936, that whoever was doing this was clearly familiar with the landmarks of the human body. Uh, He knew anatomy, and uh, a lot of, of the those that were present suggested it might be a butcher, it might be a hunter. I think they shied away of saying it might be a surgeon, a doctor. Uh, I suspect it just might have been social elitism. We don't want to admit that a doc could ever do something like this. So police noticed that the killer was upping the level of savagery in his butcherings. It, it was an escalation, would you say? Yeah. It was an escalation of sores, yeah. There were deep gashes in both thighs, and the chest had been split open, and apparently the heart ripped out, just pulled out. They never did find the whole body. They found most of it over a period of about a week, I think. And police were now slowly turning their attention to doctors, wouldn't you say? It's a little hard to tell specifically because the documentation is rather scanty. But there did come a time, and it's difficult to tell exactly when, where they did become concerned with doctors, especially those who were behaving strangely. 
So a severed limb from victim number 10 was discovered near a storm drain uh, near Superior Avenue. Right. Were there any important clues discovered from this body? Well, the important clues came about a month later when they hauled a burlap bag out of the Cuyahoga, which had both parts of the torso and most of the rest of both legs. It was a young woman somewhere in her 20s, and for the first time, the coroner, who now is Sam Gerber, legendary Sam Gerber, coroner in Cuyahoga County for 50 years, found drugs in the system. And he said these are either the drugs that the killer uses to immobilize his victims, or maybe the woman was an addict. We'll know that when we find the arms. Well, they never did. On August 16th, in a gully, someone found the remains of another victim. And they, they were kind of packaged. Can, can you explain how they were left? Uh, the thighs and arms were wrapped in brown butcher paper and held together with rubber bands. The torso itself had been wrapped in, oh, an old quilt and then wrapped again in a man's double-breasted blue blazer. It may have been the other way around. It may have been the double-breasted blue blazer around the torso and the quilt around that. But yeah, that was that was quite a discovery. Yeah, one of the more disturbing ones. I wanted to ask you, do you, do you think it was a single person that did all of these people in? Most likely. It's interesting, and I hate to use any positive adjective with a serial killer, but creative? <laughs> he treats each body so uniquely. Well, the first the first victims, like Edward Andrassy, the man who was found with him, uh, Flo Palillo, whose body pieces were found in um, these produce baskets, and the head of number four wrapped up in a pair of pants and put under a tree. I suppose a modern FBI profiler would call that staging. Um, but he seems to lose interest after that. Uh, the body parts are just dumped, thrown in the Cuyahoga most likely, or just left there. So later on, on that same day, the day that the, the packaged remains were found, there was another body discovered, a set of human bones. And the police processed these crime scenes within hours of each other, didn't they? Right, exactly. What were they able to determine from that set of bones? Nothing, uh, except that there were knife marks at the joints, which would seem to indicate that whoever it was, and as I said, there were skeletal remains. They figured the man had been dead for about a year. Uh, that was about all. Now, as far as victim number 11 is concerned, the woman, whom, as you said, was almost packaged, a very interesting thing broke about her, although this was never, ever made public. Uh, I discovered it buried in the archives of what remains of the Kingsbury Run police reports. Uh, The autopsy protocol on victim number 11 the one who is wrapped in butcher paper, et cetera, et cetera, is very, very short and very sketchy. And the pathologist, the city pathologist who performed the autopsy, uh, said cause of death unknown, most likely murder, et cetera, et cetera. 
The body parts were then turned over to the anatomy department at Western Reserve Medical School. And the head of the school in those days was a man by the name of T. Wingate Todd. And he called one of Ness's associates, a man by the name of David Cowles, and essentially said, you better get down here. And when Cowles appeared, uh, Todd showed him the body parts and said, this is not a legitimate torso victim. This woman was not only already dead, she's embalmed. And, of course, that was a major, major scandal. I mean, how sloppy was the pathologist that he didn't realize that? Wow, that, that's quite a discovery you made there. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask you about that, that I thought was really engrossing was Merlot's undercover jaunts as a hobo. Why did he dress up and go undercover as a hobo? W- would you explain what his purpose was? Well, Merlot thought that the since most of the victims were unidentified, the thought was that they were, I suppose we've used the word bums, transients, and he figured that the murderer was probably somebody who rode the uh, the rails between Youngstown, Newcastle, Pennsylvania, and Cleveland. And so at one point, he and a partner actually disguised themselves as hobos and went underground, uh, rode the rails for about three weeks, uh, going to various hobo camps, uh, talking to witnesses if they could corral. It was quite an operation. And he left quite a description of what he went through in his memoirs. Would you talk about how you were able to get a hold of his memoirs? Oh, uh, I got a lead on his daughter, and I called her, and she said she had all of her father's papers, and I said, would it be possible for me to copy them? And I should say at this point that most of the official record on Kingsbury Run murders has disappeared. Uh, Nobody thinks there's anything unusual about that. In those days, police often took their police reports home with them. And there have been so many departmental moves over the years, and a lot of the paperwork just got lost. But at any rate, she said yes, she had all her father's papers, and she would allow me to copy them. And so I made arrangements. Uh, I'm trying to remember what state she lived in, I think in Virginia, because this was several years ago. And I had made reservations at a motel, I had found a copy center which could copy all of this, and I called her to tell her that I was coming down, and she said, oh, it's all done. And I said, come again, and she said, well, I took it all to my daughter's office, and I Xeroxed everything. It took her eight hours. And she FedExed it to me, and I say, I still say to this day, in that year, Christmas came in May, and Santa wore a FedEx uniform. (laughs) <laughs> it, it was a pile of documents about a foot high, which no one outside her family had ever seen. There were two manuscripts included with the police reports that Merlot tried to write about the case. Neither one of them was ever published, but the copies of the manuscripts were among his papers. It's interesting that there were so many different ideas by investigators about who the murderer might be. Some thought a doctor and and others like Merlot thought someone else like a transient. There, there was no consensus at all. No, no, there wasn't. 
anybody who acted strangely, and a lot of people apparently were acting strangely, uh, came under suspicion. I'd like to ask you about a couple of the suspects. First, Frank Dolezal. Who was he? Frank Dolezal was a 52-year-old Slav immigrant. He was a bricklayer. And he was arrested not by Elliot Ness or the Cleveland Police Department. He'd been arrested by the county sheriff. Uh, he had lived with Flo Palillo, victim number two, for a while. And some of the sheriff's operatives followed him around. Um, basically, what they discovered was he was a pretty good guy, except when he got drunk, and then he was pretty much a holy terror. And because of his connection with uh, Flo Palillo, he was arrested by the sheriff and brought in. Supposedly, he confessed to the Palillo murder. The problem was that his confession did not match the known details of her murder. And Merlot even said, this is the first time in my experience I've ever seen anyone admit to a crime, and they didn't know the details of the crime they were admitting to. Uh, two more cons uh, confessions followed. Neither one of them seemed to be right either. And before Frank Dolezal could go before the grand jury, he was found hanging in his cell, a supposed suicide. But uh, all the evidence suggests he was murdered. We don't know by whom, probably somebody in the sheriff's department. Are you able to, to fathom a motive? Why would someone in the, in the sheriff's department do that? Uh, the case against him was falling apart. And it may have been just to avoid embarrassment. And if he committed suicide, they could point him and said, well, look, he must have been guilty. He was afraid to go before the courts. He killed himself. So who was Dr. Francis Sweeney? And how did he become connected to the case? That is a very, very long, complicated story. Uh, a woman that I went to high school with began, named Marilyn Bardsley, began researching this case in the 70s. And one of the first things she bumped into was a story Elliot Ness had told his biographer, Oscar Fraley, about a suspect whom he would not identify, but he said that they're becoming suspicious of him and that they rounded him up, brought him in, gave him a lie detector test, uh, which seemed to show that he was guilty, but they had no evidence on him, so they had to let him go, and he ultimately committed himself to an institution. Now, a lot of people thought, well, this is only Elliot Ness in his old age who can't bring himself to admit that this was a case he never could solve. And so they tended to discount it. For one thing, where did the lie detector come from? Uh, the only lie detector in the area was in East Cleveland in those days. And although East Cleveland had said that they would loan it to anyone who needed it, there was no record that it had ever been loaned to Cleveland or to Elliot Ness. We found our... When I say we, me and the woman who was then curator of the police museum found the transcript of an interview given in 1983 by the Ness associate David Cowles. And he verified that this had actually taken place. And he supplied many, many more details. 
that the gentleman involved, whom he would not identify, by the way, this operatives followed him. They took him to a hotel room in the old city hotel, which is now the Renaissance. And apparently Elliot Ness had an arrangement with this hotel, perhaps others, uh, to have a room put aside in a less heavily traveled area of the hotel where he could take suspects long before Miranda writes. And where did the lie detector come from? Ness called in one of the markers from his Chicago days. And Leonard Keeler, who is the inventor of the modern-day polygraph, actually came to Cleveland with his machine in secret and conducted the test. And he supposedly said to Ness, that's your man. I might as well throw my machine out the window if I say anything different. But again, they had no evidence on him, and so they had to let him go. Now, as I said, David Cowles refused to reveal the name of this individual, but he supplied enough detail uh, to make it very clear he was talking about Dr. Francis Sweeney. What was Dr. Sweeney's personality like? What, what was his background? Well, we really don't know much about him. Uh, he was the son of Irish immigrants. It's unclear whether his father was an immigrant or born here. They were workers, blue-collar workers. His father was a teamster back in the days, and that literally meant someone who handled a team of horses. Uh, he was the only only male in his family who went on to anything. Uh, he went to pharmacology school at Reserve, 1923, uh, picked up some science courses at John Carroll, and then went to the University of St. Louis Medical School, uh, became a surgeon. Came back to Cleveland uh, in 1928 or 29, lived in Garfield Heights, which is quite close to the areas where Edward Andrassy's body and the other bodies were found. Uh, and interned at St. Alexis. Uh, he had married a nurse in 1927, had a couple of kids, uh, and everything was apparently going swimmingly, and something began happening to him. And the only evidence we have of that is the petition that his wife filled out in the December of 1933, taking him to court, wanting his sanity checked. Uh, she said that he had grown very unpredictable, irritable, uh, that he would disappear for days at a time without telling anybody where he was, that he was allowing his practice to slide, and that he was abusive both mentally and physically to her and her two children. And so he was brought in, and he was sent to for observation at the Old City Hospital, where Edward Andrassy was a orderly in the psycho ward. Uh, he was released after about a month of observation. Within a week, she was back swearing on another warrant, and he was picked up again. She sued for divorce at one point, and I think that was granted in 1936. And at that point, Frank Sweeney pretty much disappears until Ness picked him up in about May of 1938. So Sweeney had a hospital connection to Andrasy. Did, did Sweeney have a, a connection to Flo Palillo? Well, we can't even be sure there was a connection to Andrasy. 
Uh, Andrassy was hired and fired a number of times over a period of years at the city hospital. Was he an orderly there that month that Frank Sweeney was? We don't know. The records don't exist. But it's certainly possible. Uh, the only connection we could make between him and Flo Palillo, and for that matter, uh, Rose Wallace, was that they all seemed to drink at the same bar at the corner of East 20th and Central. Do you have any idea of what might have put Sweeney on Elliot Ness's radar? It's extremely difficult to tell exactly when he they became interested in him. Uh, all we know is that at some point, somebody in the Ness organization, if I can use that term, began to uh, have suspicions about him and that he was being followed pretty regularly. And that one day they just picked him up and took him to, uh, as I said, the Old Cleveland Hotel. Kept him there, I think, for a week to ten days, something like that, uh, interrogating him eight hours a day. As I said, no Miranda rights in those days. Uh, we don't really know what originally attracted Ness's attention. Probably a whole series of circumstances that you know, we simply can't discover this far removed. But Sweeney did some pretty weird and suspicious things, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Uh, he, at one point, he knew he was being followed. And he sent a postcard to Elliot Ness, which was a photograph of a tree. And he'd written on the postcard, dig here. Again, I'm a little foggy on the dates. But August of 1938, this is about the time victims number 11 and number 12 were discovered. He committed himself to the Sandusky Sailors and Soldiers home. Uh, he'd been a World War I medic. And, of course, at that point, the murder stopped. And he began sending Elliot Ness jeering letters and postcards, you know, without ever admitting anything. And he was very far gone mentally at this point. And the few, the few of these postcards that survive are among Elliot Ness's papers at the Western Reserve Historical Society. Uh, he does attach his name to two out of the five. And the one that I regard as being the most damning, uh, he addresses at good cheer the American Sweeney. Well, what does the American Sweeney mean? Uh, I think it's a backhanded reference to Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, uh, who supposedly killed people and cut them up and put them in meat pies. That's as close as he came to admitting it. Can you give us your theory on why Ness didn't pursue Sweeney harder, especially after that, that polygraph test? Did Ness not pursue Sweeney harder because his cousin was a congressman? His cousin was the congressman from the 20th District. I'm sure in a way that played a part, but I am not willing to go so far as to say there was a smoke-filled backroom deal of some sort. Uh, Sweeney committed himself to the soldiers and sailors home about a month, well, no, within a week after uh, victims number 11 and 12 had been discovered. And again, this is pure speculation on my part. They had no evidence against him. 
And even if they took him to court, he'd be judged insane, which he was at that point, and put in an institution. And if they took him to court, of course, not only would the reputation of his cousin be besmirched, but he had a couple of sisters living in the area, and their reputations would be blackened as well. And since they couldn't prove anything, maybe there was some sort of agreement reached where get him off the street, and we'll keep his name secret. Was there bad blood between Ness and Congressman Sweeney? Only because Ness was a Republican and Sweeney was a Democrat. Got it. I'd like to ask you about Gaylord Sundheim, if you don't mind. Sundheim. That's the name that Ness gave to the his, quote, secret suspect, unquote, uh, when he told the story to Oscar Fraley. Uh, I thought that was a very, very strange pseudonym to use by no-nonsense lawman. Why not simply call him John Doe? One of the postcards to Ness has endosfreudiology, seeming to suggest that the writer had some knowledge of German. Well, Sunda in German means sin, and Heim is home. So Sundheim could mean roughly home of sin. Uh, Gaylord is British Cockney slang for homosexual. What do you make of this? I suspect... Again, I have absolutely no proof for this, but at some point during the lie detector test, uh, they asked him, what's your name? And that's the name he popped out with. And again, so everyone understands, this is the moniker given by Ness to Sweeney. Yeah. Is the case still open? Theoretically. When was the last time it was actively investigated? Do, do you know? Oh, maybe about 10 years ago. Actually, longer than that, about 12 years ago. Can I ask you about that? What what part of the, the case did they work on? Uh, these postcards that Dr. Sweeney had sent to Ness that are in the Western Reserve Historical Society. Uh, the Cleveland police wanted to lift the stamps and get some DNA. And the Western Reserve Historical Society was very reluctant to give up their documents. And I happened to be in the police department homicide unit researching the Beverly Potts case. And I heard somebody in one of the other rooms says, well, they can't claim that. This is an open investigation. We can demand them. Ultimately, what happened, they realized that all even if they did find DNA under the stamps, all that would prove was that Frank Sweeney uh, licked them. They had nothing else to compare that DNA to. But it's interesting that it's still on the minds of the, the Cleveland police. It was then, yes. Yeah, it was then. So we have the canonical 12, as you talk about in your book. The 12 people, it's it's generally accepted, were murdered by the Mad Butcher. But there were other decapitated bodies turning up during the 1930s in other parts of the country, right? This is why this is why Merlot thought it was somebody riding the rails. 
And it wasn't just other parts of the country. It was areas very close to Cleveland, Youngstown, Newcastle, Pittsburgh. So what do you make of this? Do you, do you think it was just a coincidence or the work of a copycat killer? I don't even think it was a copycat. I finally wrote a book about that, too, uh, on the Pennsylvania torso murders called Hell's Wasteland. Most of those victims seem to have been mob killings. Uh, the Kingsbury Run Butcher, which I, who I assume was Frank Sweeney, never made any secret of what he was doing. A lot of these victims in Newcastle were hidden away in a swamp, and it's only a thousand to one chance they were ever found. And in some of the victims, the method of our disarticulation seems to have been a saw. Not related, therefore. What was the murder weapon for the canonical 12? A knife. Can you talk a little bit about your research? You've dug up a lot of information on this case that no one had seen in a long time. Well, it, it, yeah, it was all serendipitous, really. Uh, bumping into getting the lead on Merlo's daughter, who unfortunately has since died. Uh, I owe her a very, very great deal. Uh, I'm on the board of trustees of the Cleveland Police Historical Society, and regularly, as especially older police officers die, uh, their descendants donate their materials, whatever they have, to the museum. And stuff related to Kingsbury Run dribbles in every now and then. A photograph of Frank Sweeney came in once, marked simply Dr. X. And of course, when uh, and I, some of Merlo's police reports make it very clear, Frank Sweeney was questioned. Uh, I'm not talking about the secret hotel room interrogation, but there are police reports that make it very clear Sweeney was considered. This has been fascinating. Where can listeners find out more about your book, In the Wake of the Butcher, Cleveland's Torso Murders, and, and learn about the other books you've written, too? Oh, I've got a web page, a Facebook page. Uh, and since I'm a complete computer nerd, I had very little to do with it. Uh, in fact, uh, the woman who created it for me, very good friend, is uh, Frank Dolezal's great niece, whom I met a number of years ago. Uh, if they want information about the books, go to Amazon. Well, perfect. This has been eye-opening for sure. Thanks again for your time. No problem. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. Follow me on Twitter at Most Notorious One. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.